Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. It is hard to eulogize any man, to capture in words not just the facts and the dates that make a life, but the essential truth of a person, their private joys and sorrows, their quiet moments and unique qualities that illuminate someone's soul. How much harder to do so for a giant of history? Those were the words of Barack Obama on Nelson Mandela. My guest today is one of the foremost capturers of words and illuminators of the souls of giants. He's an acclaimed author, former editor of Time magazine, former Undersecretary of State in the Obama White House, and the man who spent most of 1993 collaborating with Nelson Mandela on the defining biography Long Walk to Freedom, and now in a superb new podcast, Mandela, The Lost Tapes, exclusively on Audible, he presents an extraordinary selection from over 70 hours of his interviews with Mandela that year. Welcome to The Bunker, Richard Stengel. Thank you so much, Alex. That was a lovely, lovely introduction. My pleasure. Richard, first things first, one jobbing writer to another. How on earth did you land that gig? (laughs) Uh, Well, it was serendipitous, like so many things in life. I had gone to South Africa as a journalist in the mid-80s, and I'd written a book about life in a small town uh, called uh, January Sun. And what happened was the publisher of Long Walk to Freedom, who the, the, the publisher who acquired it, Little Brown, was then part of Time, Inc., and I was a writer at Time Magazine, and they were looking for a, an American journalist who understood deadlines and understood how to get a book done to collaborate with Mandela because Mandela had actually selected a, a friend of his, a wonderful uh, South African writer of his generation, but who had never done ghostwriting before. And he produced something that was kind of like a novel rather than. Uh, right, right, an, right. So they were a little bit desperate. So that's how they got to me. Right time, right place, I guess. Um, one of the things that bowled me over listening to the podcast was how good it felt to hear Mandela's voice again. I, I realized that I had missed him and I'd never met him. So how did it feel for you listening back? Well, I felt the same way. I mean, it's, it's sort of magical to hear his voice in that little room. And it's especially magical for me because it takes me back 30 years. So. I felt like I was in the room again with him. I felt like he was with me. It just feels incredibly privileged. And what's amazing about the podcast is now suddenly everyone in the world can be in that room with the two of us. Extraordinary, yes. Let's hear a little of him now. So she says, can you give this to Mandela because it's a change of clothing for him? It certainly was. Mandela walked into court that first morning wearing a cuirass, 
a traditional one-shoulder cloak worn by African kings, a beaded necklace, and a shoulder bracelet. Suits and ties were the white man's uniform. Mandela wanted to be the proud symbol of African history. It was uh, to assert myself to go to a white man's court as an African wearing my own uh, outfit and not the one that is desired by the court. Yes. Um. It was an assertion of nationalism, of African nationalism. The prison authorities understood its power and tried to take the cross from him. They called it a blanket. It was part of their arrogance because uh, when I appeared in this carros, it created quite a stir. Yes. Because it also meant a contempt for the court. In a very old interview, you said Mandela was incredibly susceptible to compliments. You described flattery <laughs> as a kind of unerring missile into him. Was part of the process gaining his trust and was part of it he's gaining your trust. Alex, I wrote a book many years ago about flattery. And so uh, I think I might have overhyped that a little bit. <laughs> he was susceptible to compliments like we all are. He was a brilliant flatterer himself. I mean, it's funny. I've always found that people who are, who are good at it are also susceptible to it with something you wouldn't mm. ordinarily think is the case. And I think that aligned with something that we do talk about in the podcast is I ask him, many people have said your one weakness is the fact that you are, are too trusting of people, that you're maybe a little naive about people. And he gives this extraordinary answer. He pauses for a second and he says, maybe that's true. And I mean, as you know, if you ever offer a criticism to a politician, they do their utmost to rebut it. And, and he listens to it and thinks, yeah, I, that might be right. Because he projected his own sincerity, his own earnestness, his own honesty onto other people. He assumed that other people were like him. I was struck by how very different the tone of Mandela, The Lost Tapes, was to the book, which is brilliant. I mean, it's considered one of the best um, biographies of a politician. But there is always a sort of self-conscious quality to autobiographies. Here is a hugely important figure committing the story to print for posterity. But in the podcast, there's Mandela doing fingertip push-ups and spelling <laughs> broccoli and talking about sex and marital fidelity. How deliberate was the choice to reveal more of the man rather than just the leader this time round? Well, very deliberate. And and because of this sort of accident of history, I mean, we were making this in 92 and 93, long before podcasts, long before smartphones, before digital recorders. I just had a, a, a you know, an old fashioned Sony tape recorder and pinned a little microphone on his lapel. So it caught everything. It caught the human moments. I mean, in the sense that when you're doing your podcast, you're not necessarily you know, putting in me going off to have a glass of water because I started coughing a few minutes ago. But on this podcast, we did have that. So it was a deliberate attempt by Audible and the producers to, to include that. As you mentioned, the spellings, you know, him doing push-ups, him asking me, why don't I have sugar in my tea like he does and why he <laughs> needs to have sugar in his tea. It, it, it humanizes him. And I think in a lovely way, because he was 
was an incredibly charming man and a very sunny man. And it was just a pleasure to be around him. So I think the listener now feels a little bit of that. It's like, oh, oh my God, Nelson Mandela is offering me a cup of tea. You would walk with him um, frequently at sort of five o'clock in the morning, which he teased you about because you weren't a morning person, to remote villages where people didn't know him uh, because he wanted to get a feel for what they were really thinking. So he didn't protect his ego. But was there an ego there, even if carefully concealed? Yes, of course there was, which I will get to in a second. And But those early morning walks in the trans sky were just an incredible privilege. And most of the time we weren't talking. But then he wanted to go see what the state of these tiny little villages were near where he was born. And actually speaking of his humility, I remember we went to one village and there was an old woman who saw him, who started chatting with him. And it was clear she didn't recognize him. And then suddenly sort of a light went off in her eyes and she said, you're the man I've seen in the newspapers. I'm still not even sure she knew who he was. And he just was always incredibly tickled about that. Not just tickled in a kind of, you know, uh, oh my God, they don't recognize me, but that because he understood what ordinary people were like in South Africa, that they wouldn't necessarily know who he was or what he was mm. doing. And their life was more about fetching water in the morning and, and herding cattle and, and, and stuff like that. So he really wanted to, to see that. At the same time, you know, as La Rochefoucauld said, all modesty is false modesty. <laughs> he had a big ego. And um, that was one reason why he was susceptible to flattery. And I found that I didn't really talk about it in the podcast. When, when I would ask him, you know, why did you do X? He would say, you know, that was my colleagues of the ANC who did that. But if I said, you know, why did the ANC and your colleagues do X? He would say, well, that was me. I did X. So, <laughs> so again, he had, the, you know, a, a healthy ego and, and normal idiosyncrasies about it. But I thought he was and more so than almost anybody was able to integrate the two in a way that made him such a successful politician. He wasn't always a sort of calm stoic, though. In his early years, he could be volatile. And and you suggest in your narration that it was jail that helped him resolve inner conflicts and that this resulted in what you call radical simplicity. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, he talks about, and there's a lovely passage in the podcast where he describes himself as a younger man, as the man who went to prison, as a radical fellow uh, who uses high-flown language, uh, who's passionate. Uh, there's a famous story where he pushed somebody off of a podium in the early days of the ANC Youth League. I mean, can you imagine? So nothing like that Mandela who emerged at the age of 72. And so to me, the prison years is the key to unlocking that. It was kind of a crucible that burned away all of that passionate stuff. And to survive in prison, you need incredible self-discipline. And mm. he talks about, and, and he talked about in Long Walk, the, the so many men who didn't have that self-discipline, who prison conquered in one way or another, as it would any ordinary person, you know, like me or you. Mm. But it hardened him. Uh, and it's that famous line from the psychiatrist, the, the same fire that melts the butter hardens the egg. It hardened Nelson Mandela. 
in some ways that were very useful, and I think in some ways that were that were hurtful to him. But that man who came out fully formed when he emerged had been produced by those prison years. In some ways, it's still a, a bit of a mystery, but I think the the outcome is just obvious. Richard, is is that lack of inner conflict something he actually shares with? populist strongmen like Trump and Erdogan. I know you're really not a fan, but is an absence of second-guessing oneself a quality voters love and one that very few progressives possess? That's a good and fair question. And I, as well as I knew him, as much time as I spent around him, uh, it's very hard to look into another man's soul and another man who was experience is so vastly different than your own. So I don't know that he didn't have inner suffering. And I think he did have inner suffering about the personal side of his life, his family, his marriages. I don't think he second guessed himself in terms of making political decisions, but he also was able to change his mind when he made political decisions, something that you don't see in these other folks like Trump who always double down on their decisions. So I remember once he had asked me, we don't talk about this in the podcast, he had asked me to do some research about voting age in other countries because of South Africa, you know, something like 70% of South Africans' population was below the age of 25 and a huge number were both below the age of 18. And I came back to him and gave him some examples where voting was 16 or 14, usually not in democracies, places like Libya. And one day he Uh, unbeknownst to everybody in the ANC, he made an announcement saying he wanted to lower the voting age in South Africa to 16. Well, there was this huge uproar about it. And I kept my head down because I didn't tell anyone that I'd done this research. And then a few days later, he said, yeah, sorry, my mistake. You know, not a good idea. (laughs) As he once said to me, when circumstances change, I change my mind. And, And that's not true of these other guys who have true authoritarian personalities. When circumstances change, they don't change their minds. They double down. And he didn't do that. Another quality that comes across, I thought, very clearly was that he was also a really funny man. (laughs) But as funny as he was in English, he was apparently even funnier in Cosa. Is that true? Did you did you ever see that in your time with him? That is my observation. He has a, a lovely, dry sense of humor. He, you can hear him chuckling and laughing a few times in the tapes. But when I was with him in the trans sky, and he was giving speeches to these local communities that were all off the cuff, not those the kind of wooden speeches he would sometimes give when he was reading, you know, stuff written by the ANC. I found the audience was like laughing. You would have thought there was a comedian up there. And I remember once early on when we were in the trans guy, the term ghostwriter was a new thing to him. And I was up on the podium with him and he had, and I don't know the close of word for ghost, but he had introduced me as a ghost in, a, in this kind of melodramatic way. <laughs> and people were yelling and hooting and hollering. I mean, and clapping and laughing. It was just, it was fantastic. And you know, I never really saw that with, you know, his audiences when he was speaking in English. And I think he was always very careful in English. I mean, he chooses his words incredibly carefully. He had a very, very fine filter 
but my my sense was in 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 Kaza, he was he was a different personality. And, you know, people have different personalities in different languages. Another theme that runs through the Lost Tapes is your attempt in a way to map the DNA of what makes a true leader. You worked for the Obama White House. Were there common strands between them? Yes, I do think so. And the the thing that was common between each of them, and, and I think extraordinary, was this very, very even temperament. Now, Mandela was, you, you couldn't push him. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't get him to be too excitable or passionate about things. He was incredibly calm always. And I was with him, for example, when he found out that Chris Hani, the, South Africa, the head of the South African Communist Party, was assassinated, which was something that could have tipped the country into civil war. He was incredibly calm. Now, I think that was achieved through those 27 years in prison. But with Obama, it was crazy. No matter what was going on, he was even about it. I remember the first time I ever kind of interviewed him when I was a journalist before I went to work with him. It had been this tempestuous day in the New Hampshire primary and we were getting on a plane to fly back Mm. to New York. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to be upset and tired and and he walked onto the plane, he sat down next to me, and it was like he'd just come back from a two-week vacation in the Caribbean. He was so relaxed. And and that's what I saw when I was in the White House with him, too. I mean, he was more serious, and, and but always very even. And I do think temperament is something that we undervalue in, in political leaders. It's incredibly important. It's a kind of wisdom. You want someone who's not going to overreact to a crisis. And that was the quality both of them had. Although Obama seems to be getting angrier with age, um, I think that's something I've noticed. I read in something you wrote that uh, Mandela, and I love this phrase, that he had a quarrel with the world because more than anything, he hated indignity and he felt that the world treated him with indignity. What would he have made of America today, of Black Lives Matter and the backlash to it, of those kinds of culture wars, do you think? You know, that phrase, Alex, I think I cribbed from, and it's, I, it's someone like Byron who said, poets have a lover's quarrel with the world. Mm. And we can check the reference. But that quarrel with the world was, was based on something pretty simple, which was that he had this lovely protected upbringing. He was then schooled like an English schoolboy to become as they, like a Victorian black Englishman. And when he went to Johannesburg at that in his early 20s and experienced this virulent racism directed towards him personally and all of his people, it did something to him. He had been trained, you know, in kind of British fair play, and suddenly he saw that didn't exist in the world. And that made him into a revolutionary. That was his quarrel with the world. This quarrel with the world is that the world wasn't as just or fair as he was taught that it was. That pivoted his whole life. It took him a while to change, and it took him a while, even longer, to become a a revolutionary who ended up embracing violence to achieve his goals, because none of that, I think, was in his natural God-given temperament, which which was much more of a a sort of a small-c conservative than a radical. You've also spoken of a global democratic recession, And one of the slightly more depressing aspects of the lost tapes 
to me at least, was how relevant so much of the politics in it still is, how, how little progress we've made in certain areas. Yes. Do we find another Mandela? Do we forge another Mandela? Is there anyone around now that you look at and think, hmm? You know, uh, there's an old English expression, cometh the moment, cometh the man or the woman. And I do think great leaders are made, not born. And one of the questions that I asked him is, you know, if you if you hadn't been born in South Africa, if you were born in a country that already was democratic and free, what would have been your path? And I remember he said, I, you know, I was being groomed for the chieftaincy and he make, made a joke that he would have a lot of sheep and a, and a big stomach. And <laughs> I think that's actually true. And there is this democratic recession in the world. I mean, the trajectory that the that the world was on after World War II, where democracies were increasing and authoritarian countries were decreasing, particularly accelerated after the fall of the Soviet Union, now is going in the opposite direction. And, and you know, he was a small D Democrat through and through, one of the greatest democratic revolutionaries in history. So I think he would be depressed about this. He was a believer in leadership, but, you know, his his recipe for leadership was pretty simple, which is like, you just have to raise your hand and say, I'm, I'm going to take this and I'm, I'm going to give it a try. And I think everywhere we need to see regular people doing that more and more, you know, not only in the U.S., but in, in European countries where there are increasing uh, authoritarian parties. You know, democracy is not a machine that goes of itself. It's something that, that everybody has to contribute to. And so I would love, you know, there'd be a rebirth of Nelson Mandela's all around the world. But again, he was created in the forage of the most comprehensive system of white supremacy known to modern man. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to have that be the cause of the rise of new Nelson Mandela's. Richard, I have one final question. To illustrate how he used to spell everything for you, we hear him reciting a list. Onion, tomato, spinach, <laughs> strawberries, broccoli. It's been driving me absolutely crazy. What is that a list of? Oh, I'm, I, we didn't say that. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't get I'm it out of my head. I'm going to mention that to our producer. That's a very good question. What that is a list of is what he grew in prison when he left Robben Island and went to prison in Cape Town. And he had on the roof of the Parle prison, he had all of these oil containers that were cut in half and filled with soil. And that's what he grew. And he was very proud of that garden. And he could remember in detail you know, not only what he grew, but I, but I, well, one, one thing we did cut was, you know, he actually went into detail about the different fertilizers that were necessary for different plants and fruits. And he, he really loved that. And he loved that garden. So that was what, <laughs> that's what that list is. Alex. How wonderful. A proper insider tidbit of information for our listeners. Richard Stengel, thank you for your time and for this audio gift to the world. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 
Mandela the Lost Tapes is exclusively on Audible now. Remember, if you like our work, you can support our work on the funding platform Patreon from as little as £3. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every edition early and with no ads. I leave you with the words of the man himself, words that still seem unsettlingly relevant. While poverty persists, there is no true freedom. Sometimes it falls upon a generation to be great. You can be that generation. Let your greatness blossom. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Kasia Tomasiewicz, Jack Gerbertson and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>